Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Dave, thanks for coming along. Steve, my pleasure. Thank you very much. So there's a lot to talk through. Um, I think the starting point should be maybe to go right back to the early days. You know, you're joining the RAF as a cadet. I think you did a degree in, in engineering aeronautics. I did. I was. Uh, I went to university in 1973 to Southampton, studied aeronautics and astronautics, sponsored by the RAF on a university cadetship. So I was technically in the Air Force as an acting pilot officer and um, training with Southampton University Air Squadron. So did you, did you always know you wanted to fly then? Is that something you, you'd grown up with? It's interesting that I've got some old Ian Allen aircraft annuals from about 1962, 63, so when I was about seven or eight. Um, so the interest was obviously there from then. Uh, and I think, yeah, from at school, joined the Command Cadet Force at the age of 13. Um, and by the time I was 15, I was admitting to people that, yep, yeah, I wanted to be a fast jet pilot in the RAF. So, so what was the draw then? Why, why fast jets? Why not heavies or transports? I don't know. I think, and certainly my feelings now that for me, flying is all about a man, a person, controlling the flight path of a machine. Uh, and aeroplanes, we've got probably the highest performance around most of the axes of any form of vehicle that we actually have. So it's this whole desire to go and be in control of a machine and where it's going. Did you um, have any family with uh, aviation connections? Had you flown as a, as a boy in a, in a Tiger Moth or something? No, absolutely no family connections with the military or flying whatsoever. And the first time that I left Mother Earth in an aeroplane was as an air cadet in the back of a Hercules from RAF Fairford about 1968. Did, did you think, one of the things that when I, when I look back at uh, the RAF and flying and, and the sort of evolution of flying is that it's become much safer over time. And I'm not sure what the figures are for the early 70s, but certainly in the 50s and 60s, loss rates in the RAF were horrendous. If you look at Meteor, absolutely loss rates. Was that something that, that ever crossed your mind before deciding that this was a career you would... No, it wasn't. It wasn't something that ever concerned me. But I've always had a fascination, if there's been an aeroplane accident, to find out why it happened. I suppose part of that subconsciously is that if you understand why it happened, you can justify to yourself that you would not have done that and that would not have happened to you. There are times where I have thought, well, there but for the grace of God goes anybody. But no, it's never something that has concerned me. And I have been involved a lot with uh, accident investigation, but also had situations where... I've watched friends die and I've led a formation home after somebody in the formation has uh, crashed. So I've had those sorts of experiences. But fortunately, I, I've always been able to deal with it. Obviously, we, we have uh, 
a substantial amount of content that we could talk about. So I don't want to spend too long talking about the early days in the RAF for you, but could you give us a quick summary, a quick pricey of what the experience was like going from flying, um, you know, sort of an elementary trainer through to your first fast jet, fast jet flight? Um, it was a logical progression. So I started off at university, on the chipmunk, then the bulldog, um, then went from the jet provost, then the hawk, and then the hunter. Um, and did my weapons training on the Hunter and then on to the Buccaneer. So it was a logical progression. There, there was, I never felt there was any huge step that I wasn't prepared for when I started any course. What about speed? Um, one of the things that's obviously notable about moving from a chipmunk to uh, Jet Provost is, is presumably the airspeed, the, uh, the, the rate of speed at which things happen. It is, but the more training that you've had, then the more capacity you develop. Um, and so with more capacity... You can cope with higher speeds, which then reduces your spare capacity. But no, again, it was a progressive build-up from 120 knots on the Bulldog through 240 to 300 in Jet Provost, 300, 360, 420 in the Hawk, the Hunter, and then um, on from there with 420 being the standard sort of transit training, low-level speed. Of course, these days there's GPS and um, embedded GPS INS systems. You didn't have those back in the 70s. How, how did you learn to, at those speeds, how did you learn to navigate? Map and stopwatch. So you planned it carefully. You drew the line on the map. You put timing marks on. You thought about what the wind was. You worked out your drift. You worked out the speed that you needed to fly to actually maintain the timeline. And so it was very much a, um, a skill that you had to learn. And some people, it was one of the areas that, some people had a lot of difficulty with in, uh, in training, but luckily it was something that um, I took to. Was, was there anything you struggled with? Um, I think there were times the biggest problem was, and I still am in the situation of being driven to do the best I possibly can and to excel at whatever I choose to do. So there were times when I was probably very self-critical, which again tends to undermine your confidence. Um, and reduce your capability in a task. I think flying is one of those skill-based activities that's probably 70% confidence and 30% ability. But if something then knocks your confidence, then it does affect your performance. I think there were times when instrument flying I found difficult at first. Um, Aspects of formation flying I found difficult at first as well. But partly it was probably a confidence thing, perhaps the way I was taught, because they're both things that I've... um, developed over the years and uh, and had no uh, and certainly have no problems with or um or any issues from fairly early days but it were they were things that i had to work hard at yeah do, do you um looking back at how you went through the process then and how it is now do you think there have been substantial changes um in terms of the way that that students learn or the teaching methods and mechanisms that are available to them Yeah, definitely. I think there's a philosophical change in that so much more now is about following regulation, following process rather than actually applying judgment. Uh, And judgment is still needed because whatever the process is, whatever the regulations, there will always be situations that occur that you haven't thought of. Um, And I think that was the big thing. The word airmanship was everything in the early days in which I was flying. And nowadays, that is still used by, should we say, something old and bold like myself, and it is still used. But people talk in all sorts of different phrases, but it is far more process-driven than it was um, when I started flying. So, so you're, you went through the Hunter um, Tactical Weapons yes. Unit, um, yes. and that took you then to your first operational 
or, or your first frontline assignment. Yes, it did, yeah. Uh, and what was that? That was on the Buccaneer. So I did tactical weapons unit on the Hunter at Lost Your Mouth, then went to Honington to do the, op- um, the Buccaneer operational conversion unit, and then I stayed on the Buccaneer at RF Honington in the Overland Strike Attack role for three and a half years. The squadron then moved to Lost Your Mouth and changed role to Maritime Strike Attack. So I went with the squadron there, and I stayed there till I went to test pilot school. So, Dave, m- many of the people that watch this channel are in the United States, and yeah. they may not be familiar with the Buccaneer. Uh, yep. Can you talk a bit about what that aeroplane is, what it was designed for, what, what role it had? Certainly. It started off as a naval carrier-based aeroplane for um, strike and attack missions. So strike being nuclear attack, being conventional, um, with bombs both in internal Bombay and on the wings. Um, Equivalent aeroplanes in the States, really, the A6 Intruder was a similar mission, and the F-111 as well. Uh, Obviously, the F-111 with reheat was supersonic, the Buccaneer wasn't, Um, but it was a long-range and very competent aeroplane. Then the RAF took it over after the plan by the F-111K was cancelled, both as an overland strike attack aeroplane operating in Europe from Germany and in the UK, but also as a maritime attack aeroplane, again, with bombs and with initially Martel missiles, both anti-radiation and um, TV-guided, and then subsequently Sea Eagle. It's quite an unusual-looking aeroplane, isn't it? It like is. High T-tail, um, sort of a, a, almost a sort of bulbous kind of nose. Yes. Um, what was it like to fly? Um, was it, what was it like to operate? Um, in the speed range from about 300 to 550 knots, it was probably the best aeroplane for flying low that I've ever come across. Um, and again, very economical aeroplane. It would burn about 120 pounds an hour at 420 knots. But it was delightful to fly there. Once you got above 550, then directionally, it was not that easy. It would yaw off slightly because the fin height was determined by the distance between the deck on HMS Eagle on five deck or something like that. So the fin was too short, basically, which had problems at high Mach numbers. Um, Once it was back in the landing pattern, then to land slowly on the ship, it had a very complex system of drooping the ailerons, flaps on the tailplane to counteract the pitching moment, plus air bleed off the engine into a banjo layer control system over the leading edge of the wings, leading edge of the tailplane, over the flaps. So frankly... In the landing pattern, it had the worst handling characteristics of probably anything I've flown until I flew the C2 Greyhound, and I would have to fly them back to back to say which was actually the worst. But it was well, it was a very demanding aeroplane um, in the landing pattern, but absolutely delightful at low level at high speed. So obviously, it was originally designed for carrier operation. Yes, uh, you were in the Royal Air Force. Yes, so, yes. so land based typically. Yes, um, I mean obviously there were some exceptions. Uh, Harriers going out with the yeah, uh, task yeah. force to the Falklands, for example. But did you ever put it on the boat and then land it? No, I didn't. The um, the version of HMS Ark Royal that had the Buccaneers and the Phantoms on went out of service about a year before I went to the Buccaneer. Um, and on its final cruise, about two thirds of the crews were RAF. So. Had I been a couple of years before, then I might well have got onto the last cruise of the Argyle, which I'd love to have done. It's one of those things that you should never achieve all of your ambitions because it shows a distinct lack of imagination. But the one thing I haven't done is to fly a conventional airplane off an aircraft carrier, and I'd really love to do it. The, those, uh, those complex systems then that were designed to help the airplane land on, on board the aircraft carrier, could you turn those off uh, for land-based <coughs> operations? Yes, you could, um, but you were 19 knots faster on the approach. Um, and we used to practice it. 
but it would then mean we'd have to have a longer runway for um, for landing. For takeoff, we normally did go off without the blow, unless we were on a short runway that we used like Gibraltar. Um, but yes, you, you could, and certainly single-engined, so that you'd have more thrust available. Typically, if you had to land with one shut down, if the runway was long enough, you'd always land unblown. One of the things that you just said was that it had sort of troop tailor-ons and you know, it was configured yeah. for that landing. Yeah. I think I'm correct in saying that the, the Hornet and the Super Hornet have a similar configuration. They, they, they have aileron droop and they become um, sort of flapper-ons. They do. So all the control surfaces, especially on the Super Hornet, will just displace to produce what the pilot is commanding. So it doesn't actually have separate air brakes um, or speed brakes, for example. It will just deflect the control surfaces it has in such a way as to generate drag. In, in that sense, then, is the bucket was the Buccaneer sort of pioneering in developing those technologies? Um, not really, because it was all purely mechanical selections by the pilot. Whereas what happens on the the Hornets is it's all the pilot makes an input with a, a conventional um, controller in the cockpit, and the computers then decide which control surfaces they're going to move where. Whereas when the pilot in something like the Buccaneer and the Phantom was similar, uh, makes a control input, then there are set control surfaces that are going to displace. So, so what was the aeroplane like to operate then? You had a, a nav. Um, yes, we did. The vernacular of the RAF. Yep. Um, what, was the, what were the responsibilities, front seat, back seat? And, and, and if you take a scenario, let's say, going out to the North Sea trying to find a, a Soviet fishing trawler, yep. let's say something like that, um, how was it to operate? How easy was it to do that? How effective was it in its mission? Uh, it had, the radar was in the back seat. Um, and so the navigator controlled that, and it was just a real beam radar. So there was nothing clever on the radars we get now, but quite a long-range one. So it was designed to pick up targets, um, certainly at 100-plus miles. Um, so it's quite good from there. Uh, but the navigator in the back had no uh, repeats of any of the instruments in the front. He had a compass. He had an altimeter. Um, the seats were slightly offset, so the front seat was slightly to the left, the rear seat was slightly to the right. So the navigator could look over the pilot's shoulder and see the engine instruments, or certainly for the right engine, depending on how wide the pilot was. Uh, but it was um, a total delineation of what was displayed in each cockpit. So it did need really good coordination and communications between the front and the back seat to make it work. Did you have um, any opportunities to fly that mission for real um were, were you on some equivalent of of quick reaction alert but for you know sort of the soviet fleet or or sort of spy vessels um we used to go out and uh, fly past and look at soviet um sags at action groups when they actually came past so we did get a chance to look at quite a few of the modern soviet ships um, we go and take pictures and sometimes we would get locked up by some of their um, missile systems just as a sort of warning. At that stage, we tended to uh, leave them alone and go away. But now I've been locked up to by one or two interesting systems. And we used to see certainly some of the, the really new ships. There was one, I remember, it was the Slava that came out of the Baltic and had actually been lost by the intelligence community. And we were in Cyprus, and one day we got airborne, and there it was sitting on the South Cyprus buoy. So we spent all day going around taking pictures and recording how the pace bike, later designated pod at the time, which had um, a video recording and an audio track so we could get all the audio signals off the radar warning receiver from the radar systems that were uh, illuminating us on that. So, yeah, we, we had contact like that, but it was all fairly friendly, but we did get locked up occasionally as a warning. Did, did they typically operate uh, in, an, in a state of MCON emission control where they, they were not transmitting where 
the work to find them was more about what you could do rather than your listening gear or your ability to intercept their um, communications or... We were never aware of what VHF or UHF radio frequencies they were using, so we never tried to uh, track them like that. So really, it was intelligence that was gained wherever that gave us the rough idea of where they were, and then we would go out to that position and look for them on the radar. What about uh, Pulsator then? Um, that was the operation. In the yeah, I'll, I'll Pulsator. So uh, we moved as a squadron from Honington. We left there, I think, July 83. Uh, went up to Lossiemouth. I went off on a course. I'd been up there about um, three days, I think. And then we had one afternoon airborne recall and went back and we landed at Lossiemouth. And everybody's running around like headless chickens. Um, and it was a case of go home, pack your bag, and we'll tell you what time we're picking you up in the morning. Uh, and we went in, and then we went down to Cyprus uh, on Operation Pulsator. Uh, and this was the support of the British forces that were in the city of Beirut at the time. Uh, and it was an interesting situation. It was effectively, it was a war going on there. And the city of Beirut was like a chessboard where one colour squares were Christian, the other ones were Muslim. But there were several different Muslim factions and they were all fighting each other. And the Lebanese government had a series of bilateral agreements with the Americans, the British, and I think the Italians and perhaps the Germans. So it wasn't a multinational force. It was four different bilateral agreements. Uh, and we went out there basically because the British Forces headquarters was threatened with artillery bombardment, potentially from artillery guns in the Shoof Mountains surrounding the city. So our mission was to go and take out the guns if they started to shell our troops in the city. So we deployed down there, and having just changed from an overland role to a maritime role, not being combat ready, all of a sudden we were doing effectively close air support um, of the troops there. So it was a very short notice deployment out there. So did you release ordnance? No, we didn't. We got out there on the Friday. On the Saturday, um, a couple of us did some fly-pasts over Akrotiri for the BBC to film. And it's interesting because we've been told not to tell our wives and families where we were going, but then the next day we're on TV. So it's a bit of a giveaway. Um, but then we, on the Sunday, we put two pairs around the city as a show of force. Uh, just to really show our troops, if nothing else, from our building that, boys, we're here. So if you need us, then we'll go and take the guns out. But obviously there was some political flag-waving as well. Uh, and I was number two of the second pair. And I must say that that was probably the best two and a half minutes flying I've ever done <laughs> because it was the opportunity to go flying literally between buildings of a capital city at 500-odd knots. Um, and it was phenomenal fun to go and do it. And we went and flew past the British Forces headquarters, the American embassy, the Russian embassy, uh, we then came down the main canal from the north of the city. Um, I flew under an American Black Hawk with an underslung load, which they took exception to, apparently. And then we went out over um, Beirut International Airport. Uh, and I sort of, there was some big, very big dumper trucks there. I went sort of level with the windscreen with my uh, backseater's eyes out on stalks as we went past. And we then went and flew under the bows of an American ship off the coast, and they got a bit upset about that as well. Um, <laughs> and so they, we put one more pair around a couple of days later, but they were told to be not below 200 feet after all that. But, I mean, it's the sort of thing I did it once. I did it two or three times, but after that I'd have stopped because I'd probably hit an unseen wire or mast or something eventually. Um, but no, so we did that, and then we kept two airplanes armed up with Payway 2 laser-guided bombs, um, we had A9L sidewinders on for self-defence, ECM pods, and we just got the early 40 Chapman flare dispensers on the airplane. So we kept two fully armed up 
Um, and our task was to be able to launch in 30 minutes. But we had a direct secure VHF link with the British Forces headquarters uh, in the city. And we reckon we could probably take out a target within about 30 minutes of them calling us rather than 30 minutes airborne. And we used to practice it. So we would either with a fully armed airplane go to the point of lining up on the runway and we'd come back and shut down. Or we'd take the uh, two more airplanes out there that were unarmed and then we'd get airborne, we'd scramble and we'd go to within three miles of the coast. Uh, and then we'd turn around and come back. And the three miles was largely driven by the surface-to-air systems that were in the city. We reckon that, you know, the phenomenal number of SA-7s um, they had Roland, which was probably the biggest threat, uh, and there were about two dozen ZSU 234 um, AAA systems in the city. <clears throat> there were a couple of airplanes lost by the Americans. There was an A6 actually on the tack run that pressed too low on the dive and was taken out by a Roland. Uh, and I think there was an A7 with the carrier air group commander off the carrier out there. He was just floating around over the city about 8,000 feet, and he got taken out as well. So there was um, a real threat out there. But fortunately, we never actually had to go and drop any bombs. <clears throat> because there was, there was, I will say, from both sides, a great deal of respect for what the British were trying to do out there politically. And we'd been there about three weeks when the ceasefire came in. Um, and then I was one of the weapons instructors out there, so I came back on the first rotation when the ceasefire came in to go then back out there a couple of months later. Uh, and we carried on out there for about six months, uh, normally on a two-hour standby. So we'd always have dawn-to-dust commitment because with the, um, the designated pod we had for the laser-guided bombs, then it was uh, TV. It was paper spike. It was TV spectrum only. <clears throat> so dawn-to-dusk, and two hours commitment and there was once where one evening um an rpg7 went into the side of the british forces headquarters so we went back up to 30 minutes standby then um and then there was a phone call made to the british forces headquarters by the leader of the druze militia wally jumblatt apologizing and saying we weren't really aiming at you at all <laughs> dreadfully sorry and so we went back down to the two hour standby and that was the closest we we actually had so no it was interesting i think there was one soldier had an injured arm but it was it was good on an operation like that we never actually lost anybody and we weren't you know, we, we didn't have to go and um, and take anything out. But one of the interesting things was up to that point with the laser-guided bombs, then our prime tactic was based on RAF Germany, was to do it from a toss manoeuvre. So you'd run at low level, pull up at 4G, the bomb would come off, and then you would um, designate the target and guide to the target. The problem we had was that the artillery guns in the Shoof Mountains were going to be quite high above the target. So if we ran at low level, the profile wasn't going to work. We weren't going to get a big enough apex. So we developed a 40-degree dive profile um, against the targets, which we'd never done before. So we, we did that, um, looked at the maths of it, the dry attacks, the capabilities of the pod, and then we set up a trial um, and we dropped two inert bombs onto targets out in Episcopi Bay that uh, just proved the profile worked and it had never been done before. So it, it, was, it was fascinating to actually develop that. And it was, I think, in the RAF, the first successful medium-altitude laser-guided bomb delivery profile that had been developed. There were some attempts in the Falklands War for the Harriers to do it, but I think they were trying to designate it with the onboard laser system, which wasn't ever going to work with the bombs. So I don't think we realised at the time quite how groundbreaking some of the things that we were doing were. And it was interesting then that the uh, tactics books that we developed there, we dusted them off when the Buccaneers went out to initially 
designate for the tornadoes in uh, Gulf War One and Op Granby. And I remember going to the cupboard and getting these books out and seeing how much use they could be for the squadron ten because it was a tactic that was no longer used by the Buccaneer Force at that time. You mentioned uh, the low-level flying, the show of force that you did in, the, yes. in Lebanon. And uh, you've talked a little bit about those American losses, the A7 and the A6, yeah. uh, to, to man pads and to Roland. What is the, uh, what's the compromise between low-level flying, medium-altitude operations? Uh, what's the value of flying low? And um, is, is it still relevant? Um, if we go back to the concept of those times in the Cold War, let's say in the 80s, uh, and operating in Germany, which was the scenario everybody really looked at, then you had a total threat environment in some ways. You had surface-to-air systems and you had air-to-air. Uh, and it was fight the closest crocodile to the canoe in some ways. Um, so if you went at medium level, then the RAF, uh, the, the British lagged behind the Americans in some ways in electronic warfare. So even in the 70s, really, there wasn't a jamming capability. There wasn't... IR decoy flares uh, and so the air-to-air -air threat was more predominant but the big thing was that by flying low and fast then the probability of kill from most of the surface-to-air systems at the time was relatively low uh, and small arms was obviously an issue but if you're flying fast enough it was quite difficult for somebody to hit you uh, and that was what drove a lot of it and also in Germany the weather was poor so that if you flew at low level you were under the cloud you could see the target but you didn't have any sort of computerized weapon aiming system with target coordinates in it. So you couldn't afford to fly at medium altitude and still hit the target. If we take it forward to today, though we have very sophisticated um, electronic warfare systems, defensive aid systems, uh, very good situation awareness where the targets are, totally precision guided munitions that in the UK we don't use any unguided weapons at all other than strafing with the gun so there's no rockets there's no unguided bombs at all um, and so based on that then the emphasis has changed to medium altitude uh, especially with standoff weapons as well there was always the increased risk of an accident at low level it was a high risk environment uh, and there were a lot of airplane losses at low level by people flying into the ground um, and so the emphasis has certainly changed completely, but that was why we low flew at that time. So how difficult is it as a pilot to, to fly low then, at the sort of speeds you're talking about? Um, I think it requires a subconscious work cycle in some ways of where you look uh, and how far ahead you're looking and thinking. And you say about different, I must admit, I mean, it was... One shouldn't use the F word, but it was fun. There were no two ways about it. Flying an airplane very low, very fast is fun. Um, and But some people were concerned about it and didn't feel comfortable. So there was certainly um, a comfort factor. Some felt more comfortable than others. But it was a specific work cycle that you had to employ that came more naturally to uh, to some than others the biggest problem came when the weather deteriorated so you had poor visibility no horizon um, and it depended on the terrain as well one of the worst situations is if you're flying over an absolutely calm sea um, and that is dreadful because you've got no visual perception whatsoever uh, and as time went on more and more airplanes got radar altimeters and better quality radar altimeters but certainly when i started flying the hunter 
then um, we didn't have radar altimeters in that. The Navy retrospectively fitted some. In the Buccaneer, we did. It was fine providing you a wings level, but more than about 30 degrees of bank, it wouldn't read correctly. So it was pure visual judgment. So you were a qualified weapons instructor. I was. And uh, in, in the RF, uh, so-called QI. Yes. Uh, what does being a QI mean? Um, there's two aspects to it. So I'd been on the squadron not actually that long, but my CEO asked me if I would like to go on to the... Um, the, the QI course <coughs> on the Buccaneer um, the following year. So I said, yes, absolutely. And there were two sides to it. One, um, the, or the course was always run by the Operational Conversion Unit. And then there were two aspects. So you either had people who were QIs on the OCU who taught the weapon aiming side, or you had QIs on the squadron who were responsible for the tactics, the weapons delivery, who were the experts in those areas. So that was where I went. So after the QI course, I went back to the squadron. Um, and there was a weapons leader. There was the there was a squadron leader pilot as a senior QI. And there was a, a QI pilot and a QI navigator. So I became a QI pilot. And then when we went from Honington to Lossiemouth, um, I became the QI pilot on the squadron. Again, they've been in a completely different role to where I've been before. Uh, and that was one of the aspects of my work on Up Pulsator, was as one of the two QIs who regularly went out there. 